Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers. And today, I'm privileged to have a very interesting guest. His name is John Gentry. He teaches at Missouri State University. He's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown. For 12 years, he was an analyst at CIA, working primarily on economic affairs for the former Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact. Two years, he was the senior analyst working for the National Intelligence Officer for Warning. He's a retired reserve officer with a background primarily in special operations and intelligence. In 1996, he was deployed to Bosnia. He has a PhD in political science from George Washington University, and he has a very thought-provoking book out called Strategic Warning Intelligence, which I have read and thoroughly enjoyed. John, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate, appreciate the invitation. John, in your book, you talk about the paradox of warning. What is that? Paradox of warning is a distinct phenomenon of the, the warning business. It's a situation in which warning, warning analysts uh, getting good collection information provide warnings to senior decision makers who act in ways that deter the uh, warned about event, which makes the warned about event and the warning look to be inaccurate. So it's a case, it's an unusual case in which excellent warning looks like a failure. The only variety of any kind of uh, intelligence analysis where this occurs. John, in your book, you draw out four different case studies of classic history of warning. Could you elaborate on that for our audience, please? Certainly. The book, the book in chapter two has four case studies that, that individually provide a great many warning lessons and together comprise many of the, the, the lessons that warning, warning analysts need to know and have learned over time. The first of them was the, the German invasion of the Soviet Union in, in June of 1941. This was an excellent case of German deception. The Soviets, uh, for their part, failed the warning mission for a number of reasons, mainly mainly because Soviet leader Stalin refused to accept the many warning messages that, that he received. He showed a number of biases uh, related to unwillingness to, to uh, accept the word even of non-communist uh, agents. And, and, and he, he simply made a, a number of analytic errors himself. This is a great example of why senior leaders should not be their own intelligence analysts. The second, the second case was the D-Day invasion of June of 1944. In this case, in this case, the uh, the Allies, particularly Great Britain, uh, de- designed a a massive and highly successful effort to defeat German warning. In the, in this case, the the British used used uh, counterintelligence assets. They used SIGINT. They exploited the biases of German leaders, particularly particularly Hitler, who thought that the the Allies would would surely do the same things that he would do. So the Allies picked Lieutenant General George Patton, who who Hitler liked, to 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 run a notional first uh, U.S. Army group, the FUSAG. So it was a, a, an excellent case of of deception that defeated not bad warning. Uh, traditionally, traditionally, intelligence analysts have thought that German intelligence was not very good. But as you recall, Jim, Nigel West has been on your your program and indicated that the Abwehr was actually considerably better than the conventional wisdom has been. 
So the 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 uh, the Allies, again, particularly the British, did an excellent job of defeating a warning a warning a warning mechanism. The third the third case study was the Egyptian surprise against Israel in October of 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. Here here the the warning failure on the on the Israelis' part is particularly surprising because the the Israelis had excellent collection. But they became convinced that that the war plan that they had received in the in the 1970 roughly period remained in effect. This became known as a concept. It was it it, it was it was originally a, a, a good war plan that became simply an assumption, and the Israelis did not change their their views as the as as time went on and as they received additional information. And they ended. They ended up simply being very, very badly surprised by a uh, a, a clever and time-consuming process by by the by the by the Egyptians. This was a very, very difficult experience for the Israelis, and they still they still talk uh, in uh, in hushed uh, and and surprise terms about that 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 case. The fourth uh, fourth case we wrote about was. Was the uh, national intelligence estimate in of, of uh, October of 1990 called Yugoslavia Transformed? This was a, a national intelligence estimate, which, as intelligence aficionados know, is normally a, a a an assessment of an aggregate situation. But it also was, in this case, a warning document. It warned about the demise of this, of the 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 state of of Yugoslavia. It accurately predicted what would happen. The interesting thing in this case is that even though the the NIE as a as an assessment and as a warning document was unusually accurate, that the the George H. W. Bush administration did essentially nothing to to respond to it. So they they accepted it, but they did not do any anything to to respond. There were several reasons for this. The the the, the administration was preoccupied with putting together a coalition to uh, liberate Kuwait, which happened, of course, in 1991. They were worried about the collapsing Soviet Union and, and the spread of nuclear weapons. They thought they thought Yugoslavia was a European problem. And perhaps most importantly, the NIE said there was very little that the U.S. government could do about it. So the government took them at, it, at their word and didn't do, didn't do very much. Now, whether something might have happened... Might it might have been able to be be done about the collapse of Yugoslavia is another another question. But the, the the great lesson here is that even a fine warning message will not generate action if it's if it's not if it's not persuasive. So those are our four cases. John, what are some examples of different kinds of uh, warning institutions? There are at least five of them that I've been able to identify. The first is one I referred to earlier. The situation in which there is a single national leader who is his own intelligence analyst and makes his own warning-related decisions. This is a not efficient. It's uh, made serious. Second, second one is what what call a separate warning in states in the Watch Committee, which existed in the 1960s. And in this case, a warning institution has considerable authority, considerable power. In the Watch Committee's case, it had access to the, the White House and, and was uh, generally widely widely respected. The, the downside of that system is that it's not well connected to analysts uh, in the community as a, as a whole. A third variety is what, what we call every analyst a, a warning analyst. 
This is a situation in which intelligence agencies will tell all of their analysts that in addition to their other responsibilities, writing current intelligence and other things, that they're they're responsible for identifying warning issues and passing warning messages on to on to, uh, to to senior officials. That is a system that we have now in the United States, uh, and is I think a, a problem because there's not a central authority who a central locus of, of warning messages who's got the the uh, bureaucratic cloud to to go to go to the White House and say, we have an issue, Mr. President, or to whomever. A fourth variety is, is what what I call a hybrid, which is the, the last two situations combined. So you have a warning institution, which has responsibility for, for providing senior level warning messages that is responsible for developing uh, warning methods and also is watching the community of analysts as a whole and, and encouraging them to, uh, to do, to do uh, warning, warning analysts. This is the situation that we had in the United States from 1979 to 2011 when, when we had the, the, the NIO for warning, the National Intelligence Officer for warning, a, a, a senior-level warning-dedicated person. And the fifth one is a relatively new institution that I think is best called the whole of government uh, warning institution. This occurs in a few countries around the world, all of which are small. Singapore is the best example that I know of. In this, in this case, you have small government agencies that can work together pretty well, pretty closely, and, and look for uh, issues of importance to the, the government as a whole on a, wor- world, on a worldwide basis. John, what has been the history of warning in the United States? Well, we've had a checkered history or an up and down history, if you will. Uh, perhaps the greatest warning failure in American history occurred on the 7th of December of 19, 1941, the Japanese attack. And uh, as, uh, as, as many people know, the Central Intelligence Agency was created in response to that, to that warning failure. Uh, the warning mission became important and was highly regarded in the late 1940s into the 50s as a result of the emergence of the Cold War. We were, we were concerned about the possibility of a Soviet nuclear strike, of uh, invasion of Western Europe, and warning was seen as a way to, to help, help prepare uh, and to, to alert, alert the country, and then later on NATO to the emergence of, of, of this, this kind of threat. So as time went on, though, there were ups and ups and downs. So high, high respect and authority of the warning missions in the 40s and 50s, lots of resources, good people. In the 1960s, with the advent of the Vietnam War, the, the warning mission went away. Focus, focus went to the, 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 the tactical war in Vietnam. In the early 1970s, warning fell further in status and interest because the detente era of the time led people to think, well, if the main Soviet threat is uh, going away, the Soviets are being friendly, then we don't need a warning. Warning that, that, that complacence tended to largely end in the late 1970s when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. But this was the, the time, 1979, as I mentioned, when the, the National Intelligence Officer for, for Warning position was created. Uh, in the uh, post-Soviet period, 
the, the status and willingness to fund the warning went down again. The Soviet threat went away, and it uh, when it went down again after the 2001 attacks. The warning was seen as not being relevant to to the terrorist mission. And finally, in uh, in 2011, apparently for all of these reasons and perhaps for some more, uh, Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper abolished the uh, NIO for warning position. So we do not any longer have in the United States a centralized uh, warning institution. John, uh, compare and contrast for our audience the systems in the U.S. and in the U.K. Certainly. We have a larger and, a, and again, in, institutionally changed situation, as, a, as, a, as I mentioned. Uh, in, the, in the United States at the moment, since we do not have a national level warning function, the, the uh, military warning function is handled by the combatant commands. So within the Defense Department, warning is, is heavily a military, military function. In the United Kingdom, we have a different arrangement. The, 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 the mission there, warning mission there, is handled by defense intelligence. That's the defense analytic organization associated with, with the British Defense Ministry. It works military warning mainly. Another very important part of the, the British system is the Joint Intelligence Committee, or the JIC. This is a, an organization that was established in 1936 by the, uh, the three the three military services. Over time, it has evolved into a largely civilian organization that works for the cabinet office of the of the prime minister. It's roughly, in my mind, anyway, it's roughly an equivalent to the National Security Council staff. And so, what we we have since intelligence is being done in that is that you have, in essence, the the rough American uh, analogy. You have roughly the president's daily brief staff appended to the National Security Council staff. And so in this situation, you have intelligence officers who are working very closely with, with persons from policymaking departments. So you have a warning and other kinds of intelligence being done in a uh, joint intelligence and policy kind of a way. So you end up you end up having national estimates instead of intelligence estimates the way we have here in the United States. So it has a it has a real strength I believe in the sense that uh, it makes it makes intelligence and the policy community tightly linked. You don't have problems of what we would call in the United States uh, consumer producer relations. The other other major aspect though is that the the British intelligence community as a whole is much much smaller than we have in the United States. So their capacity to do intelligence and to do warning intelligence is less than we have here. John, what are some examples of uh, warning methodologies? Well, there are a number a number of these as well, some lessons I think that, that we have. There are two general types of, of ways of looking at and approaching strategic and strategic warning intelligence. The first one is something that is idiosyncratic that that we we really can't predict terribly well. The Defense Department now calls these emerging warning issues. When I was an analyst in the 1980s, the director of the intelligence analysis, uh, intelligence director at Bob Gates used to tell us that our job was to look over the horizon for things that policymakers do not yet know will one day uh, concern them greatly. So this this meant then that we we were tasked with being imaginative and coming up with all kinds of of insightful 
ways of looking at the world. So, so there's no real method to this approach in, in intelligence, native intelligence, expertise, imagination, a little bit of skepticism, and some other personal characteristics are important in, in this respect. The second, second major category is uh, what the Defense Department now calls enduring warning problems. So these are ones that we know exist and, and have existed for a while are likely to exist in the future. So think of a historical case. We were worried about the Soviet invasion of Western Europe during the Cold War. That was an enduring enduring warning problem. We were looking for, for threats. There There is a, a, a standard method now that we use and some other countries use in slightly different ways to, to, to handle this. This is known as the indications and warning method, sometimes called a technique. It, re it really is a structured analytic technique or a SAT uh, for, for those interested in, 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 in that kind of analytic uh, help. So in this case, you have a basic approach in which, in which you, you identify a, a warning problem, an issue or an end state, as it's uh, known in the Defense Department now. You, you do research, you look for methods that you look for ways in which the warned about event might occur. You identify indications that might in, that might suggest that 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 one or more of your scenarios are likely to occur, and you develop then indicators, do collection, make making a, a warning message if it's if if it if it if it is is warranted. Key here is research, discipline, uh, development of expertise about your your warning problem. There are some some more narrow lessons that I would I would suggest are, are important that we see repeatedly in the in the literature, and these are a few of them are are paying attention to what leaders, foreign leaders, foreign actors, intelligence targets, are thinking. So one of the mistakes that's been made many a time is is for warning analysts to look at an objective situation and presume that foreign actors are going to respond to the situation as opposed to doing what they think about the situation. So uh, a classic example of that is, is the mistake that even the Soviets recognized, the mistake of Soviet leader Khrushchev, who initiated the, the, the missile crisis in Cuba in 19, 1962. This was a big mistake on his part by Soviet standards, and he ended up being relieved of duty in 1964 for having threatened the, the Soviet Union in the view of fellow Politburo, Politburo members. So watch for what intelligence targets are thinking, not just assessing the situations in which they, they exist. Another important thing domestically is making sure that prospective warning consumers know about the, the capabilities, the limitations of the warning function. So the edu educating consumer function is, is always an intelligence role. It's especially important for the, for the warning business. And it's especially important for warning people to understand their immediate consumers because, because accepting warning messages is sometimes very difficult. Uh, it, can, it can involve acceptance of the necessity to make decisions that are unpleasant. 
And we know that that sometimes decision makers will simply put off making that kind of a decision. So it's very important for warning officers to understand the psychological makeup of their of their key their key consumers. Another uh, important important lesson, the thing to remember is that intelligence is a special excuse me warning intelligence is a special intelligence function. It is not current intelligence. We've seen a situation in in the past, in many cases actually, particularly during the Vietnam Vietnam period, in which warning warning units were were basically transferred into into current intelligence shops, which basically destroys the the, the warning capacity. And then a, a final one, at least for the for discussion here, is 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 time. Uh, it's it's critically important that all warning messages be be issued in in adequate time for decision makers to act. And there are really three components to time in this in this in this model, if you will. The first one is that is that decision makers need to dis, need time to decide. That they actually do need to make a decision. So this is an internalization process. Secondly, if they decide to make a decision, then they need to put their put their their desire to normal governmental decision-making processes, which takes time. And then the third element is is the time that it takes to implement the actions that policymakers make. So if this is a diplomatic demarche, for example, time can be relatively short, but if it's if it's sending a significant military force or halfway around the world, it could be could be a long time. So the warning analyst needs to to take make an assessment of all three of these varieties of time and back up the warning message to the point where where decision makers have an adequate amount of time to to deter, head off, defend against the the perspective warned about events. In light of that, John, what is an optimal uh, warning time frame? That's a, a very good question, and it is one that is very much uh, very much debated. And in preparing this book, I did a number of interviews with with warning warning people mainly producers but some consumers over time and ask them for their, their view their view on that the the general the general answer that they got was 6 months to 2 years so that would be for strategic warning uh, not not tactical warning 6 months to 2 years very significantly by observer it can be quite short and i can can think of at least uh, at least the israeli case prior to peace with israel in which in which the Israeli military told national leaders they needed they needed only 72 hours of of strategic warning. In the Israeli case at the time, that was the amount of time that it took to mobilize the reserves. So it can be it can be can be short, but often is cited as being considerably longer than that. It's not more than a presidential presidential administration term for sure. Tactical warning tactical warning much much shorter. I'm an old infantry guy, and you know, when I think of tactical warning, I, I think I think of somebody telling me the the mortars are in the air, heading heading my way, you know, duck, get to get down. So tactical warning can be uh, can be, you know, even seconds, minutes, hours, maybe a few, maybe a few days. So tactical warning is considerably shorter than than than, than strategic warning. A new a new time frame here that I think uh, I anyway don't don't uh, fully 
understand is cyber warning. So we've got we've got cyber attacks, cyber attacks associated with with military actions and so on. We've now got cyber going on in the case of Ukraine and so on. And we don't really know, I think, at least in the public domain, how long an adequate period of warning will be in the in, in the cyber domain. It is clearly longer than the, than the time it takes to hit a button and transmit electrons around the world. We know that in some cases, Chinese attacks on the Office of Personnel Management, for example, back in the 2014-15 period, that the, the actual preparation of the cyber attack took over a year. So, so the, the the warning analysts here would be would be would be needing to look not at the actual attack itself, but but at the the preparations for it, and being able to understand what those preparations meant. So that is a tough task. Uh, the warning mission is is a difficult one always. It's not getting any any easier in the cyber world. John, what are some causes for the failure in dealing with senior policymakers? There are a number of them, but I think we can uh, summarize them in in a, in a in a few ways. And perhaps the best way to start with that is to talk about what what uh, John Byrd, my uh, my first boss, is a national intelligence officer for warning, told me early on in, in my 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 time with him. He said there are three important three important things in the warning business. First is good good intelligence collection. No surprise there. Secondly, you need to analyze what's going on. So good analysis, again, not terribly surprising. The third thing that he emphasized was communication, was persuasion. He said that the, the key, a key to the warning business is being able to persuade senior decision maker that something is happening that's sufficiently important to warrant a senior level decision. So. And, and persuasiveness in this case does not mean that you're advocating a specific policy decision. Persuasion means that you're trying to convince a decision maker to think about making a decision. And that can the answer there can be the decision there can be either 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 to make a decision or not. So the key to that third component, and Bird told me in no uncertain terms that he thought that the third one, persuasion, was the most important and the area in which warning usually failed. The key to that is the development of, tr of personal relationships of trust. And, and by that, I mean the development of, of, of interactions between warning officials and those, those senior decision makers. And this is critical because decision makers that do not want to make costly decisions need to be sure that the people who are telling him they need to make costly decisions are people that, that, that they can trust. And uh, a, a good example, I think, uh, explains how this, how this can work. I remember very early in my time with, with John Byrd, he came back to the office after being out of way, and he talked about how he'd uh, just had lunch with Al. And I uh, said to my said to myself, rhetorically scratching my head, who who in who in the world is this Al guy? Well, it turned out Al was was uh, was the commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Alfred Gray of the Marine Corps. And uh, John Byrd used to have lunch with General General Gray every every couple of months. They would they would uh, talk over situations in the world, and uh, General Gray would tell tell John Byrd what what uh, what what was what was concerning to him. So what what Byrd did in this case was establish 
a relationship of trust so that if there was ever a critical situation that that uh, the general gray needed to know about that general gray was in a position where he would he would really know who this john bird fellow was and whether it was a good whether it was a good good warning message or not well there are other there 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 are lots of causes for distrust so you want to create relationships of trust is, if you can, but we know too that distrust can be create, created for a number of reasons. Uh, lack of confidence in the competence of, of warning officers. The, the warning messages are not very good, uh, for example. There's a, a personal integrity issue that shows up periodically. One of the best best ways to, to ruin a relationship of trust is to leak leak documents to the press or to, to, uh, to uh, even other other intelligence uh, analysts, and a critical one that 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 I think we've seen in recent years, unfortunately, is the issue of of uh, political uh, neutrality and, and objectivity. Uh, if if a national leader does not does not trust intelligence to to be to be apolitical, that's pretty clearly going to damage a relationship of relationship of trust. Another another way that that distrust trust can occur is is situation in which warning warns excessively uh, and the excess warnings turn out to be to be incorrect so this is a situation in which in which you have what's become known as a cry wolf syndrome after the little boy with a sheep sometimes known as the chicken little syndrome the sky is falling in a childhood story so the idea here is that if you warn excessively then people consumers are not going to listen to you anymore. So so it's critically important for warning people to be be sure that the the, the situations in which they actually issue a warning message are good ones. That doesn't mean that they have to wait to be certain. Indeed, if they wait to be certain that a situation is developing, then we're not talking warning anymore. We're talking history. So so you need to make a trade-off in the warning business between between you know be, being 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 uh, knowledgeable knowledgeable about a situation and making informed judgments about what might occur, versus versus uh, versus being 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 excessive in one one way or another. One uh, one way to handle the the Crywell syndrome is to provide war, provide uh, opportunity warning judgments. So this is a situation in which you actually become welcome in policy circles by providing information about what what might usefully be be a, an opportunity to to advance national interests. So in this case again the warning officer is not saying to to policymakers this is what you should do but rather you're saying here's a situation that that provides you a potential opportunity to advance national interests it's your choice whether you want to take advantage of that opportunity, and it's your choice how you might wish to do that. So those are those are uh, those are important uh, important lessons. John, finally, what steps need to be taken to revive and reestablish warning in the United States? I think the first one is to recognize the mission. So I was discouraged and still am that the DNI Clapper abolished the, the position of uh, National Intelligence Office for Warning in, in, in 2011. We have in the intelligence community now a concept uh, concept called anticipatory intelligence. 
I have to say, when I first heard that, I thought I laughed because I thought that was an oxymoron. Intelligence is only about the future. It's only about anticipating. But it, it, it's crystal clear that anticipatory intelligence is not warning. So, so I think we, we really do need to think about what the what the warning mess what more what the warning mission is. I would recommend reestablishing a central location, the uh, position of the NIO for for warning within the National Intelligence Council worked well for for over 20 years. And I think that reestablishing that position or something like it would be a good idea. So again, you would have in this case, a central location that would be the place for a senior level warning message to emanate if it's not produced through the, the, the line analytic units. This organization also would be in charge of helping to develop additional warning methods over time. There should be, I think, as well, a an increased linkage of the warning mission to counterintelligence and cyber operations. Both of those now are are, are pretty clearly important pieces of the, the warning function. I would like to see a modification of ICD-203, so that's, that's Intelligence Community Directive 203. That's the, the uh, document produced by the, by the director. It's known as analytic standards, which emphasizes the importance of putting evidence into, into uh, intelligence messages. Now, in principle, that makes a lot of sense, but in the warning case, in the warning case, you're not again dealing with history. So the nature of warning is that it's 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 unusually speculative, and you want to be able, without being punished bureaucratically, to 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 be a little bit speculative in the in the the warning the warning area. I think also it's important to to emphasize to new analysts in the training program that that warning is a mission. And I think it's it's important to emphasize to uh, junior and middle managers that the the warning the warning uh, mission is important for all of their analysts. Uh, intelligence analysts and managers have lots of incentives. They have a publisher parish kind of incentive structure now, and warning tends not to be something that that reasonably can be done on a on a uh, publisher parish uh, kind of a basis. So we have some institutional disincentives for the for the warning mission that I think are unfortunate. My own guess is that is that we probably will not have a significant change in the warning structure in the US intelligence community until we have a new significant uh, warning failure. So what I would hope is that people who are thinking similarly to what what I've just been talking about would have at the ready a series of reform messages after the next major warning failure. Well, the book is called Strategic Warning Intelligence. It is a very insightful and instructive read. And I want to thank John Gentry for coming on today's program. Thank you. AFIO is a small, nonprofit, apolitical, educational organization whose main mission is to help prepare the next generation of intelligence officers to confront the challenges our nation faces in the years ahead. To learn more or support our outreach programs, visit www.afio.com.